For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, the Sega Saturn handheld console. A stunning new Amiga demo. And we go from Core Designs to Walt Disney Studios with Rolf Moore. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books I'm in love with right now, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the brand new expanded edition. Now, if you ever thought that the Mac wasn't a gaming platform and doubted its contribution to the history of video games, you need to check this book out. We'll tell you more about it in just a bit, and you can check it and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project at the moment, give them a try. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And they're massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 369, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that each and every Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic days of video games and, of course, goes inside the companies that brought those legendary titles to us back in the day with a veteran of the industry on each week's show. And, of course, before that, we bring you up to speed on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and tech from over the last seven days. And I'm hoping that Ravi's not too tired. I know you are full-on at the moment preparing for this massive UK Amiga event that you're putting on in uh, how many months away is it now? Don't want to panic you or anything? We, Not we, long? We've got, we've got a few, but uh, yeah, I have been kind of behind the scenes just like organising this whole event, which is kind of crazy. It's going to be a big Amiga UK show, so check it out at AmigaShow.com. And uh, it's going to be on the 1st and 2nd of July. And actually, we've got an announcement, which is a new guest. So at the moment, we have Mike Daly from DMA Designs coming along. We've also got Simon Phipps from Core, who, uh, you know, was responsible for Rick Dangerous and some mm. quite cool titles. And, you know, it's going really well, the ticket sales, and we're getting all the traders and stuff. And uh, I'm really quite excited about this. I can't wait to actually be there and be at an Amiga event. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, it's been, we were talking when you announced it a couple of weeks ago, it's been nearly a decade since the last UK Amiga Expo, you know, like a nationwide one. And you're going to be hosting this in Nottingham at Meadow Lane Stadium on the 1st and 2nd of July. Um, I'm looking at your website right now. It says 107 days to go. <laughs> so you haven't got long left to get your tickets. I mean, I'm sure you're going to have a lot more announcements before then as well. Oh, but, for um, sure. There's also a big, a big after party as well that's going to be happening in Nottingham. Yeah, the after party is actually sold out at the moment because it's been right. so popular, that element of it. And yeah, that's that's going to be really good. And hopefully next year we're going to, try to expand it and uh, make it even bigger. So this is, you know, something that I want to do every single year. 
Yeah, so tickets are available to buy right now on that website, amigashow.com. Um, I know you put in Joe to work as a car park attendant on the day. We, yeah. right? Joe's, Joe's going to be like I a dancer. I was going to be a very special guest. <laughs> he's he's going to have to do the Amiga theme song on stage. I will be. No, I'm going to be there. Uh, if you've got any competitions on, I'm going to be you know brushing up on my Amiga skills. Uh, no, being so, at a football stadium, we've got to get sensible <laughs> soccer out. So. Yeah, I yeah. think sensible soccer and uh, fingers crossed some micro machines as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, got to be done. So uh, it's going to be massive. Make sure you join us for that. Uh, tickets are on sale now. Get them before they sell out. Amigashow.com for Kickstart 01 happening in the UK, 1st and 2nd of July. Now, we have got an amazing guest on this week's podcast as well. I mean, you mentioned Simon Fitz from Core Design. And I guess this week actually worked at Core back in the day as well and went on to some even bigger companies after that. Yeah, so this is uh, Rolf Moore. And Rolf has an absolutely amazing career. You know, we're based in Nottingham, so we have a Core right next to us in Derby. And uh, Rolf actually started Games Workshop, which is a, a brand based in Nottingham, and then went on to Core to do some backgrounds and kind of graphics for video games like uh, Universe and the Curse of Enchantia which um, you've got to say the backgrounds are stunning they look like um, something out of Fantasia or one of those kind of Disney titles Uh, really you know know, when I first saw that game as well because it runs on a standard Amiga 500 and I think they used some kind of graphical trick to get more colors in there but literally first time I saw that I was like, how the hell have they done this on an Amiga 500? Yeah, it was, it was a very impressive title. And then Rolf kind of ended up moving into, into many different companies, including Sony Psygnosis. Um, so he tells us all about, you know, going into that kind of 3D Studio Max era, learning silicon graphics machines and kind of taking that step away from the 2D Amiga stuff into the 3D world. Then eventually going on to Hasbro, um, doing some... Absolutely amazing titles there as well. Uh, Trespasser, which was that Steven Spielberg uh, Jurassic Park title as well. Attachy uh, on the Fringe as well. There was a lot of like um, 3D space shooters, but then also going into the PS2 with Ratchet and Clank, doing uh, Halo as well, uh, Combat Evolved and the Master Chief Collection. And then later on, going all the way up to DreamWorks and Disney, uh, becoming one of the chief concept artists there that basically helps create stuff for, you know, Tron and some of these brands like Alien that have started to come back. So uh, this is going to be a really interesting interview. You know, it's just incredible the amount of projects and companies that he's worked for. I wonder when Rolf ever sleeps. Yeah, maybe. That's quite the CV he's got Maybe there, he's it? creating graphics in his sleep. <laughs> that probably helps. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a great kind of story of development coming from you know, that comic book world as well. And then eventually yeah. going into the, the whole 3D space and then, uh, you know, visiting some of these older brands that we all love and helping bring them back. So uh, an absolute superstar, Rolf Moore, is going to be our guest on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, before that, we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from uh, over the last seven days. And uh, it seems to be a bit of a trend in retro gaming right now that fans just want to miniaturise things. We're talking about that um, even smaller version of the Atari Lynx a couple of weeks ago. And now, um, I don't want anyone laughing here, but this is a little project called the Sega Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit pronounced Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a miniature handheld Sega Saturn. That you can have close to your... No. (laughs) 
there's always one isn't there yeah so handheld sega saturn my dreams are coming true um somewhat anyway so this is um obviously this isn't sega putting it to mass production or anything like this this is a prototype that's been made by a user called tzmwx and uh, this isn't actually the first time he's done something like this but it's the first time it seems to have kind of like been picked up and got any sort of like you know kind of notoriety on uh, notoriety notoriety so they're saying it's funny in the articles i've been reading about it people go oh it looks just like a game gear so it's about the same size as game gear but if you actually read into it i thought it looks more like the sega nomad and i'm reading into mm. it it's actually based on the sega venus prototype which i believe we covered on the show a couple of years ago which was kind of like dug yeah. up by sega about two or three years ago um but yeah imagine if you know the nomad if you don't it's about the same size as the game gear and then it's kind of got you know the six buttons on the left on the right hand side and the d-pad on the right hand side I really like the look of it. It's based on the Japanese Sega Saturn, so it's that kind of like white plastic kind of, not chrome, but like a matte kind of white plastic I really like the look of. He's got a video out at the moment with him, you know, not much kind of like, well, there isn't really any talking in it, but kind of showing it off. And he's got it not just playing Sega Saturn on there, but he's also got playing the video CD off the, um, on it as well. You know what Sega Saturn could play with the... Uh, you know, oh, the you FMV get, card. The FMV card. He's got yeah, that working right. on it as well. Um, so... Obviously, he's done away with the uh, the disk drive on it because obviously you can't have a big chunky CD kind of drive on the back of it and moving it around and stuff like that. It's just going to fall out of place and scratch and stuff. So it is running off SD card. Um, so, you know, some people could argue, oh, it's just a Raspberry Pi now or anything and stuff like that. But it isn't. It is running off a Sega, Sega Saturn motherboard, which is taken apart and has got you know, working in there. So it is original Sega Saturn hard- hardware in there. It is just got an SD card loader to emulate the games on it. He's which also think- uh, got enough. the cart in there as well, which is yeah. uh, the 4 meg expansion. Um, yeah, the 4 meg expansion card. Which is pretty useful to have in there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you can use, there's a lot of games that, you know, required that or were enhanced with it. A lot of the King of Fighter games and like Samurai Showdown games and stuff like that. Um, a lot of like the Japanese fighters, which I think is really cool. Obviously, he's got, you know, a nice, like, three-and-a-half-inch display on the LCD supply, uh, display. And then a, a battery life, a battery with a battery life of three hours. So a little bit better than the Game Gear, I would say. Um, I, I love this. I love the look of this. I think it's a it's, really nice size. It's interesting. It, it's got, like, um, some brightness controls and stuff like that. And, uh, like, these are these are thought-out devices. You know, we've, we've mm. covered this guy before. And, um, yeah, TZM. WX and they're really nice devices, but for me, this needs to be in black. Like seeing yeah. it in white is a bit weird. Yeah. Like the PlayStation One, I kind of get, but uh, maybe he hasn't got any black filament on his. <laughs> I think. Well, if he's trying to make it look uh, like the Venus, I mean, the Venus was white, wasn't it? White and grey. Yeah, I, I mean, I, he's kind of basing it on that look. I don't know if he's based on the Japanese Sega Saturn. So the Japanese Sega Saturn was white. Oh, okay. I'm not, I yeah, don't think so, I've seen one of those. Yeah, yeah that was. Oh, they, quite, look, they look weird when you see they, them, but they're quite slick they, looking. They look they? more like the dream, like they're the kind of same color as the Dreamcast. Mm. Um, the weird, the yeah. So it always throws me off when I see a Japanese Sega Saturn because, like, say, Ravi, we're so used to seeing them in black, and I think in black that you there was something about like the Mega Drive and the Sega Saturn which looked like really futuristic, but what the nineties looked like in the future. So. I think I think I'll have to agree with you. I see why he's done it in white, but I prefer it in black as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> well impressive though. This is like you know as close as you're going to get to a commercial product uh, with yeah. having the original hardware in there is just totally nuts. And it's like you can see the progression of his design as well. You know, um, 
he's got stuff like there's like a bezel a bevel or kind of uh, indent around the d-pad you know so you're going to be comfortable whilst playing it it seems to have a nice kind of curvature to the case um which is really cool and like the leds and then all the relevant plugs and stuff like i've made a an amiga laptop out of lego it's no way as slick and beautiful as this this is a, a, a really Don't well the thought lego out. laptop <laughs> <laughs> ergonomic <laughs> kind of design you know yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I have seen other projects, you know, people miniaturising the, the satin into a handheld, but none of them look quite as slick as this. I mean, there are, yeah, like you said in the video, if you watch it, and also this article that I'll link up on Retro Dodo, they kind of go through a few iterations of it. I mean, the original one's just kind of that 3D printed resin, but by the time it gets further into the prototype, I mean, you've got different coloured buttons on there. It's even got the Sega Saturn logo under the screen as well. So it does look like, I mean, it could be a commercial product. And I love seeing stuff like this as well, because, I mean, to me, even seeing like the Game Gear back in the day, how much more powerful that was than the Game Boy, mm. for example, you know, being colour and, uh, you know, it just felt like it was basically a, a television console in a handheld format. Something like the Sega Saturn just felt far too powerful and power hungry, I suppose, you know, to shrink down into a handheld form factor. So in a way, it kind of proves how, how far we've come in terms of battery technology. I mean, can you imagine doing something like this using 90s components on like six double a batteries you probably get about five minutes battery life out of it back about then. five minutes battery life and then obviously you probably have to have some sort of massive disc drive on the back you know something yeah. maybe reminiscent yeah. of the psp <laughs> where it kind of holds it in place you know like there is a you know the umd disc but obviously the size it's of a normal cd so it would have been pretty chunky but i you know what i would have loved that as well <laughs> yeah i mean it is great to see so many fan projects coming along and uh I just want all of these handheld systems that are coming out, but it's like, you know, I work from home all the time now. I need to go out more, Joe. This is making me realise. So if you want to check out more about this, I'll uh, link it up in our show notes, along with all of the stories in your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of trends in retro gaming at the moment, it is survival horror game of the week, Joe. We've covered this pretty much every week over the last month or two since we knew on all the time. Um, maybe because you're a big fan of them and you keep an eye out. But this one, I've got to say, does look very impressive. Now, this is a new game called Rewind or Die that is kind of inspired by like PlayStation 1-style graphics. Yeah, so, you know, I, I don't know who keeps finding these stories, you know, who keeps trolling through these uh, these horror game forums. <laughs> these mystery. Game. It's a complete mystery, but yeah, this is Rewind or Die, which is going to be coming out on Steam on April 14th. So we got a trailer a couple of days ago from, for this. And this is um, PlayStation 1 inspired graphics. I don't know about you guys, but I love the look of this game. And I've played a couple to of To me, it games. looks a bit more like a Sega Saturn, actually. Yeah, it, it, it it's got a Sega Saturn graphics. Yeah, it's definitely got a Sega Saturn look to it as well. Um, very reminiscent of like Silent Hill, um, more so than kind of like Resident Evil. But this is going to be published by um, a company called Torture Star Video, who are a part of, they're like a subsidiary of a publisher called Puppet Combo. And what they do is they do, so Puppet Combo are kind of renowned for doing this kind of like horror VHS style slasher games that they've been doing. I played Murder House last year for Xbox Series X, which absolutely terrified me. That was like a fixed camera, you know, isometrical view like Resident Evil, whereas this is a first person view. And what I think is quite cool about this is it's set in the 80s, as they all are, but you work in a movie shop. So it's set, video you store. know, a video store, like a blockbuster, and you work as like the clerk on the night shift, you know, and it starts off like pretty simple, kind of like serving customers and going through the dialogues and stuff. And it's a first person 
uh, perspective and you know you pick what you want to say and stuff like that but then what happens is overnight is you get attacked by a serial killer as you do <laughs> you know the game takes an absolute massive turn um, and becomes a little bit of a survival horror first person shooter and um like I say, I've played a couple of these games by Puppet Combo um, and Torture Star Video seems to be the new kind of like subsidiary they're going going with. And uh, yeah, the, the, these these games, I, I've recently played through like uh, Callisto Protocol, uh, which is a brand new horror game and the Dead Space remake and stuff like that. And they don't really scare me. Whereas these old PS1 style games, they, there's something about them that's really unsettling and just really yeah. make me jump out of my skin um maybe it's the music maybe it's just like the janky graphics and you know janky controls but there's something about it i absolutely love you know what would make it this would make a really good virtual reality game as well i think looking at the yeah. trailer yeah it would actually yeah, it could work it's first person kind of perspective a lot yeah. of it, isn't it uh, although there's one thing i'm reading here and there's someone in the comments on this um website um, yeah. bloody-disgusting.com they, they there's a little quote in here it said it turns the mundane job of a video rental store clerk on its head. And the first comment is, you mean dream job? Now, I don't know about you guys, I always fancied working in Blockbuster when I was a teenager. I always thought that was like an amazing job. Um, yeah, my friend worked in Blockbuster. It. <laughs> it, uh, he ended up getting like just a lot of popcorn, a lot of chocolates and stuff on discount. And it wasn't the healthiest kind of job. I think it just like absolutely came to me. He'd like come home with a big bottle of Dr. Pepper every week. Because I remember being about 13 and going into my local Blockbuster. And then there was a, it's the guy in there, like, you know, maybe a Sunday afternoon. He was just watching a movie and I think he had like a, you know, one of, one of the fresh Cokes and a, a popcorn as well. I remember looking at him thinking, God, I'd love to do that job one day. This looks really cosy. What a job. You, you soon get bored of it. I've actually got a friend at work, we're going off on one here, but he used to work at the mm. Golden Wonder Factory as a uh, taste tester, like a quality control tester, and used to have to, have yeah. to eat the crisps off the conveyor belt hot. And he said, you know, when he first got the job, it was his dream job. And after two days, he was sick of crisps. <laughs> so. oh, I think I think I could do that, Joe. I don't think I'd ever get bored of crisps. This, this, this video looks all right, this kind of rewind or die. It's, it's interesting because they've got this kind of old school effect over it, which is this yeah. like blur and stuff. And I'm not quite sure I like it. Like, I'd rather see clarity but with like no anti-aliasing or like you well, know when you had a bit of jagginess with it and this seems yeah. to kind of remove that jagginess for me you you can it- switch it off in the games i've played by these guys before so obviously this oh okay yet, yeah yeah but, um, I'd, I'd prefer I've, to go in that mode yeah it seems I've, I've, a bit like the n64 vaseline kind of yeah mode. i think that is the idea of it you know silent hill for the ps1 had that you know that vaseline draw distance like fog that you say but you can switch it off um you do have the fog the draw distance still but that like that smear effect that you're talking about obviously i can't say it will be in this one but in i think i've played two of them and the two i've played that you could switch it off and i i switched it off i'm not gonna lie i switched it off <laughs> It, is, is it meant to be like a CRT filter? Yeah, it's, it's like? kind of like it's 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 a CRT filter, and it's kind of like to help with the draw distance and stuff to kind of make it like that retro feel, like you know, like Ravi's N sixty four ones. It's interesting, like that was one element that we would live in fear of uh, when you would rent a movie. It was always rent it but return it on time because you're going to get charged extra and make sure it's rewound. That was always. One thing that I'd always get told off when you get it right, when you get this one, make sure it comes on time. And it was like, oh, it's quite a, quite a big charge as well that you used to get on top of the movie, you know. You know if what? you'd looked inside Blockbuster and there was a serial killer in there, they might let you off the fine. 
It yeah, might, like might, it might have been. <laughs> Probably not known Blockbuster, to be fair. <laughs> so it does look really good, this game. They're coming out on Steam uh, in about a month from now. Um, looks like there is a, a wish list of it already, so I'll uh, link that up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you mentioned not being a fan of the N64 smear Vaseline effect, Ravi. This one might be for you. This is a uh, new Raspberry Pi Pico-powered adapter that gives the good old N64 a very sharp-looking HDMI video output. This is, like, this to me is just, it's going to break the whole market of, you know, external converters and stuff. Because if people can do this with a Pico, which is, um, you know, an incredibly cheap device, and it can be applied to other machines, you know, I'm looking here at the moment, uh, you can get one from Pi Hut for £3.60, uh, it's like a chip, isn't it? Really small Raspberry Yeah, Pi, but, yeah, yeah. Programmable uh, chip, basically. But um, if, you, if you can have this connected to any machine and you can start to use this as a way of getting a, an output on a video, you know, we've seen with the Amiga, um, they've used RGB uh, ones at the moment, which are, are like RGB Pis that are basically converting the signal. And this is great because it's making it a, a lot cheaper for people to run their machines it's it's very bare wires at the moment kind of mm. hanging out of the machine and stuff but i can imagine the more this design gets slicker and um you know people print like little 3d printed cases and stuff like this this could be applied to lots of different systems and then uh you know that whole buying a frame meister for lots of money would kind of uh, uh just go really and be for like the the complete pros or you know, buying one of these like really high end converters. If you can do this with a Pico, um, yeah, yeah, wow, it's just uh, <laughs> something that could be just insanely cheap. Well, this is a guy called um, Conrad Beckman. He was a guy we actually spoke about his um, other Pico project on the show a while ago, maybe last year. He did the uh, Pico Cart sixty four. Yeah, it was yeah. a um, basically a, you know emulates a, a cartridge. But this is actually based on another project. He's kind of took it to the next level, and I mean, there's a you can follow his his progress on Twitter where he's kind of showing the development of this. It looks like there is quite a lot of input lag right now, but I guess he's kind of running this in some kind of debug mode, and I imagine it'll look a lot better. Yeah, it's, it's, it's as, as these things develop, you know, they get better and yeah. better and more people kind of get involved, you know. It does seem like, though, <laughs> the amount of Raspberry Pis that are suddenly cropping up inside retro systems. I think it was, it was your last Amiga meeting I came to, the Robin Hood group. I think there was one guy there who had like, he had a Raspberry Pi taking care of an HDMI output on an Amiga 500, then another Raspberry Pi taking over the CPU. There's like at least two of them in there doing different jobs. But like you said, I mean, they're just so much cheaper than custom yeah. projects, aren't they? And making your own boards and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and you know, this this could become a thing. You know, you just... You just buy your Pico converter board, you just plug it in and then sorted. You can just go and you can, you know, go around Joe's house and get every single machine that's on RF and just like <laughs> I knew that was convert gonna it up for like 30 quid or something. You know? I was thinking to myself, you guys are going to say, what do you think of this, Joe? And you're gonna, I was going to say, you know what I'm like, you know, my, <laughs> with my RF cables. Yeah, Joe is a guy we went to his house for the first time when he had his setup. Got about come. It was going back a while now. Must yeah. be, you, when did you move into that house? Seven years ago. Five yeah. years ago? Seven years ago? Seven years ago, yeah. yeah. We, we checked the back of your telly, everything. Well, I think we were playing some consoles, Joe. Like, I've, I've got to reach in the TV. We're like, hang on a minute. Are you watching these via RF on a LCD? I, I love the, Have you? I love the <laughs> kind of line that he said here. You know, He says a proper kit might show up later. Um, mm. uh, you know, They're aiming for a no-cut solution as well, which would be, you know, 
having to get in there or do any soldering or anything like that. Which would be nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Joe's kind of gone the other route. You, you went down the CRT route in the end, which, to be fair, I mean, the N64 is a weird console to me. I've never seen one obviously upscaled like this. I mean, I've seen people kind of plugging them into LCDs via, you know, the composite cables, which just looks horrendous, mm. you know, when it's like really blurry and upscaled. It is probably the worst console to upscale onto a modern TV, I think, generally, you know, in terms of just plugging it straight in. Yeah. But having something like this, I mean, might make it look a hell of a lot better. But for me, it's like, that is the one system. If you said you need a CRT for the N64, that's kind of the one that jumps out for me. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's, yeah, it's taking that raw digital signal and then kind of converting it to a HDMI one, which is uh, seems to be the way to do it. I do remember when there was all these HDMI R- RGB mods, and people would go in and kind of physically do it. And I guess the Pico is actually doing that signal conversion where before they could, you know, chuck it out in the RGB, but they'd have to have a, a way of displaying that and not getting that um, HDMI compatibility. Yeah, it does make it a lot better, though, because like you said, you're tapping straight into the, the video signal rather than trying to go via the outputs that are already there, which I imagine was a big problem with the N64, that the video output just wasn't all that great to begin with, you know, the ports that we had on there. But um yeah, I mean, it looks like a great solution because that's the thing. I mean, not everyone's got room for a CRT and plugging these in. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my TV's about five years old, maybe. It hasn't got any SCART sockets on there, nothing like that. So there's very few ways to kind of get an analog signal into a modern TV these days. So if you want to play the original consoles and you haven't got an old school television, you haven't really got much choice, really, if you want to go down the, the HDMI route, which um, a lot of televisions, you know, only have that as their modern input. So, yeah, it is very cool to see. So if you want to follow the project of uh, the progress of that project, I'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, this is an interesting one. I've got to say, when um, Joe and I first saw this, Ravi, our jaws absolutely dropped at this demo. But you've been looking a bit more into this. Now, this is something that I've seen... Absolutely everywhere. I've heard people tag me on Twitter, a um, bunch of people on Discord. I know um, Gareth posted it in Discord as well, as did Ash as well. Um, and this has been all over the Amiga forums and the Facebook groups. This is a new 3D engine, apparently for the Amiga 1200, that they're calling a Spyro the Dragon tech demo. Basically saying that Spyro the Dragon could technically run on an Amiga 1200. Yeah, kind of. It's 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 impressive as hell this is this is um a really really nice kind of 3d engine um that's getting developed and it's using a couple of advantages that are on the amiga so um you've got the ham mode which is hold and modify so it's uh running in ham six and um the ham mode was always interesting to see games and demos produced in there there's a certain look with ham mode where uh it's got a bit of blur and kind of you know the graphics uh, they're not always the sharpest and stuff, but... You normally get the colours kind of fringing at the edge, don't yeah, you? Yeah, but I'm kind of really lines. nostalgic for that. I, quite, I yeah. kind of think it's got its its own beauty as well. And uh, Ham was always used for, for, for speeding up video stuff. And um, there's also uh, Chunky to Planar as well, which is a routine. And uh, combining those together seems to have created this... Um, Absolutely fantastic engine. It, it is running really well. Um, some of the demos that we've seen, um, you know, this is based on Dread, which is uh, one of the games that came out for the Amiga recently, which was kind of using a lot of these effects that were created, a lot of these routines as well, to 
to create a, a, an amazing Doom experience, you know, Doom-like experience. It was like a Doom clone that could run on like an Amiga 500, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and this can run on an Amiga. Now, the thing is they're running different um, kind of graphics within there. So uh, there's, there's been an example of kind of um, uh, Descent style engine that's running in there. So, uh, you know, the game Descent for the PC, where you're kind of floating through corridors and stuff, and that works really well, and that runs on the original Amiga, and this is on the uh, O20 processor, and you will have to have some fast RAM. So the fast RAM actually affects the, um, the way that it's displayed. So, you know, obviously more fast RAM the better it's going to be. Now the sp- well, I remember in, in Amiga 500, you put some fast RAM in that speeds it up by about four or five times anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And the impressive thing about this is it's running on such a low spec. Now the difference is the demo that we're seeing um, is probably running an emulator, I'm going to say, because um, the uh, chip RAM would not be able to handle that kind of um, that Spyro <laughs> you know, whole world, it's all got to get loaded into two megabytes. Because it's running, it's running at 50 frames a second in this demo. Yeah, so. yeah. And, uh, you know, they're saying actually the performance is going to be 20% less than that, that demo that we're looking at. But still, that's very impressive, Yeah, you know, uh, to be running at that speed. And, and this is like something that's just started, this engine. So, you know, this engine could get refined more and more. And you need to think about like, models of games that could start to get put in there. And also there may be tricks, I'm not sure, using like map ROM features, or there may be tricks using different speed ups and stuff to be able to have maybe more powerful CPUs in there that can handle more in there and, uh, you know, run it at some crazy speeds. I'm just trying to think of what kind of titles you think they could implement in this engine. Spyro the Dragon. (laughs) (laughs) It would be the obvious choice for me. Uh, But you're right, because there's a guy who um, who made this. He's called um, RST7 is his name. And I've been reading some of the discussions on GitHub and on English Amiga board as well. And he's basically saying this is a small 3D engine for the Amiga, but he hasn't really got the skills to implement a game in there. Yeah. So what he's looking is for kind of other people who are maybe game designers. It's kind of like could, a demo, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an engine demo, really, isn't it? And um, there are some people who've posted videos of it running on real Amiga hardware. I mean, there's a very blurry handheld demo video on YouTube that's unlisted, but I'll, I'll put a link to this in our show notes as well. Um, of someone running it on an Amiga 4000, and it doesn't look quite as smooth as in this video. Yeah. But it is still very impressive for what it's doing. And like you said, I mean, it's early days of this as well. I'm sure there are it's, more it's, it's, optimizations. At the moment, it's RST7 and uh, CBCIE, and uh, they seem to be the folks behind it. it. It looks well impressive, yeah. And I'm thinking, like, there was a game, do you remember it? It was called Tales from Heaven, yeah. which was kind of in this effect. It was like a platformer. It was done in that kind of hand-mode graphics. But to, to me, that seemed like kind of... N64-y kind of PlayStation graphics, which this is getting onto the edge of. Obviously, that needed like an 040 and it needed some proper kick and it needed yeah, to and get... even that run pretty slow from what I remember. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you never, that. in ham, you're never going to get that like definition that they had. But but like I said, it's got its own beauty and it's got its own kind of look. What what do you think, Joe, coming from a kind of a, a console world and, and a seeing this done, considering that the machine has a graphics chip, but it doesn't have a, a huge like graphics card in there or anything. 
You know what it reminds me of? But I'm in my mind's eye here because I've not played this very much. Magic Carpet. Do you remember that for the PS1? <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, it, pro- it proper reminds yeah, me of that. If you're talking about Blur Vision and Mist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Blur Vision and the Mist. Um, and then just the, st- the style of what they're trying to do as well, also kind of like that floating around and stuff reminds me of Forsaken, but um, which is another kind of PlayStation 1 era game. But I just, yeah, you can tell it's Spyro, like looking at it and stuff like that. But you, you, like Ravi says, like I know it, it's probably a little bit too good to be true, but it, it's still in concept. I think it's very cool. No, and I think they can get there, you know what I mean, uh, with these optimizations. But I also think there's a certain look to Ham as well that you might not have seen, which it kind of feels a bit less than Sega Saturn-y in, like, you know, definition um, because it hasn't got the polygons and stuff. But, it, oh, yeah, I, I just love the Ham, the Ham look. And I think as well the fact that, you know, everyone now seems to be getting like pie storms and stuff in their Amigas, I guess, you know, no one really has to make games for a standard one megabyte Amiga 500 anymore. Yeah. You can do a bit more with it now, which I think is very cool. Now these uh, solutions are becoming affordable. So, um, yeah, it looks really impressive. And if anyone has got the skills to make this into a full game, um, I'll link up the discussions on uh, EAB and his GitHub as well, because I know he's looking for people to uh, give him a hand with that. It does look like a very impressive I think, engine I think to get the started more on. people involved with it, uh, the, the better it will grow and, you know, get, get yeah. the other programmers involved, get some ideas of, like, you know, maps that they want to put in there and stuff. And then uh, you've got this crazy engine as well as this uh, crazy doom clone so i'll uh, stick that so far you can check out the video and uh, the github as well if you want to download it and give it a try um in the show notes and at the retrohour.com now if we're talking about impressive games as well now we're f-zero back in the day obviously legendary game and it looks like there have been a few kind of spiritual successes to it that we've talked about over the last six months or so and this one looks very cool now this is called xf extreme formula yeah, so it, it does feel a little bit like a lot of these indie developers are trying to, you know, fill the void of uh, our, our F-Zero-less world. We've not had, correct me if I'm wrong, an F-Zero game since the GameCube with F-Zero GX, which, you know, oh, wow. in my head is probably like, oh yeah, that was only a couple of years ago, but probably getting on for 20 <laughs> years, I imagine, probably about 19 years ago now, I think that came out. And, you know, F-Zero... I kind of had to remind myself when I was looking at this. F-Zero is a, it's not like a, you know, a game made by Capcom and Nintendo. It's always been on Nintendo consoles. It's a Nintendo game, you know, like I forget. Mm. It's a, you know, a fully, you know, first party. It was Miyamoto, wasn't it? It was Miyamoto. And it was a, you know, I think it was a release game on the SNES or at least a very, very early game on the Super Nintendo. And then obviously N64 and GameCube. and And it does feel really strange that we've not had a Wii, Wii U or Switch you know, F-Zero, or at least a remaster um, of GX for the GameCube, because that had absolutely stunning graphics. But as you say, we've got a lot of, we're covering a lot of these games that are trying to fill that void. And, you know, how close can you get to something before Nintendo come for you? You know, we're looking at this <laughs> SF, XF Extreme. So it's being advertised kind of like as a spiritual successor to F-Zero. Um, at a glance, it just looks like F Zero to me. You know, it's got it's got this. You know, the, the ships. I don't want to call them spaceships, but you know, the cars, if you will, the hover cars. It's got the crazy tracks. It's got the futuristic look to it. It's got the the cars going over a thousand miles an hour. Um, um, it looks quick. The speed it on looks. It. It's it looks quite exhilarating. It looks very very quick. Um, it's coming to Steam. 
Um, it's, you know, in early stages at the moment, but uh, runs at 60 frames per second with 30 cars on the track as well. So very similar to F-Zero. And it's being produced by one guy, being made by one guy called Philippe Ribeiro, Ribeiro Danlos, I think, of uh, Fepid Games. I, I mean, I think this looks really cool. You know, I've wrote in my notes here, like Nintendo kind of need to get themselves into gear if they want to be, you know, like, you know, kind of fill this void. But I'm also worried Nintendo might come after him as they do. But I think this looks stunning. I think this looks absolutely stunning. But it's got kind of like a, I don't know if you guys agree, like a cell shaded graphic style to it as well. Graphically, weirdly, it reminds me of um, Outrun 2006. Well, <laughs> yeah, kind of Horizon Chase Turbo, which was the... Uh, kind of one done recently it reminds me of that yeah i mean it, it looks really nice and you know i love a, i love a good racing game and i've got to say in terms of speed especially when you get like the turbo boost and stuff as well it looks like one of the uh actually in some ways you know in terms of the speed boost and stuff it reminds me a little bit of like something like um sonic and sega all-star racing there's a bit of that yeah. kind of element there as well yeah a little bit yeah um, I, I, kind of the style yeah, of the good. backgrounds and stuff now you've said it i can see that yeah, I mean, it does look really, it looks right up my alley. I've always loved these games as well. You know, I love the original F-Zero. I remember playing that at my friend's house on a, on his Super Nintendo. Um, and I, th- I think it was one of the first SNES games that used Mode 7 back in the day as well, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, so Battle Pilot like Wings. A, I think yeah. they either came out with the SNES or Pilot Wings came out just before F-Zero. But yeah, it was definitely one of the first. Yeah, and I'm hoping this sells well as well because it does kind of prove that, you know, that, that will prove there's an appetite for this kind of game mm-hmm. out there too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, which, like you said, I mean, I've just checked. Wait, yeah, the last Nintendo F Zero game was two thousand and four. Oh, I was right. Yeah, nineteen, 19 years, years ago. You're right. So, um, yeah, that was um, F Zero Climax that came out on the GameCube. So, uh, long overdue. So, if you've been desperately waiting for a new F Zero game, this looks uh, really good. Uh, coming out on Steam very soon. It would be great if it got like a Switch release or something, but. Not holding my breath on that one, but you never know. Stranger <laughs> things have happened. So uh, I'll put that in our show notes as well. And all the other stories, you find them all at theretrohour.com. I can't believe how quickly this month is flying by, more than uh, halfway through the month already. That means next weekend, next Sunday night, is going to be our favourite weekend of the month. Last Sunday of the month just feels like Christmas every month, doesn't it? <laughs> if you mean if you mean wearing silly jumpers, getting drunk, being nostalgic and spending money, then absolutely, yes. That's spot on for me. (laughs) Well, this is, of course, our patrons hangout. Now, we do this last Sunday of every month in the evening from 8pm UK time for a couple of hours. When we all get together, as many of our patrons that want to come on, join us, we all geek out about all things retro gaming, show off our collections, share tips, help each other out if we've got problems with our hardware, nerd about movies, mobile phones, everything. No holes barred on the Patrons Hangout. And if you'd like to join us for this month, it is coming up next Sunday. And of course, it does mean that um, we're getting ready to record another episode of our Patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. Now, I think we've got like, what is it, 32 episodes of that we've done now? 32. So this will be episode 33 um, we're always welcome to suggestions to what we talk about on the after hours as well. So the after hours is just the three of us. Um, and, you know, we kind of give our opinions. We've covered a lot of like, we used to call it the retro years. Or we used to cover a lot of like, you know, what was going on in retro in, in that particular year. So we kind of covered all of the 90s and the early 2000s, dabbled a little bit in the 80s. Um, we give a lot of our opinions on like, you know, our favorite kind of Sega Mega Drive games and Super Nintendo games. And one I really loved, which was the latest episode, was our top five hidden gems. And you guys blew me away. 
you know, Ravi started off with a couple. I was like, I've heard of that. But about halfway through it, I, I hadn't heard of any of these games and they all look really, <laughs> really fantastic. Really prove what hipsters we are. Oh, yeah, episode, absolutely. So uh, <laughs> if you want to check that out, I mean, that is available to all of our uh, patrons, gold members and above. Um, if you join us on Patreon now, you're going to unlock all 32 episodes. So plenty of listening there. And you get the normal podcast early when I can get it out some weeks. You also get it ad-free every week. And also we give you around 50 minutes. Three extra news stories that we're going to be doing just for our patrons in a minute, um, including some really good stuff on the EverDrive and uh, a Windows pinball game that you might be familiar with. So if you want to join us on Patreon, you get all of that. And of course, amazing. Main reason that you're doing it is just to support this podcast and make sure that we can keep bringing it out every single week. And we've actually got some new patrons to welcome into the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> so a massive thank you for joining us over the last week, Anthony Okerson, Les Orchard, and Rowan Allard, who all joined us on Patreon recently. And if you'd like to join them on there, all the details to sign up to our Patreon are on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, Rolf Moore is coming up in just a second. Let's take a moment to give a massive thank you to our main sponsor. And again, you know, we talk about people that we couldn't do the podcast without. That is our friends at Bitmap Books, who've sponsored this show for many years now. We love Sam and the team over there. They do incredible work. And, uh, you know, if you're talking quality retro gaming books, they do not come much better than these, do they? Oh, you know, I've got quite a few Bitmap Books at home, and I look at them on the shelf and they're just stunning like with the sleeves and just the quality of the books um you know some of the artwork absolutely stands out and uh they've got a really interesting book at the moment which is called the secret history of mac gaming and you know mac is like a system that we don't really think about with gaming you know but there's a lot of gaming a lot of developments and i love my strategy games there's a lot of strategy titles as well that came out on the mac well, you've got an old um, 68K Mac. Yeah. You've yeah. got hold of recently, haven't you? Whenever we're to do the patrons hangout, everyone's always interested in, uh, what's that behind you there, Ravi? You know, you're kind of working on getting a, a SCSI card and stuff in there as well, so you can play some old school Mac gaming. But, I mean, there are so many franchises that started on the Mac. I mean, you, you know, you've got Myst. Yeah. It, started, it was a hypercard game, Myst, wasn't it, originally on the Mac? Yeah, Myst. You've got um, SimCity. You've uh, mm. got Halo as well. Yeah, so there's, you know, a whole a whole group of absolutely amazing titles and not to mention the PD stuff that was on there as well and shareware. We actually had Richard Moss, the author of this um, book, on the podcast uh, a year or two back, didn't we? And it was a really interesting chat. So definitely worth checking out that episode that we did. And uh, if you haven't got hold of the book yet, there is a brand new expanded edition. Um, there's around 80 interviews in this as well with legends of the Mac gaming scene, 480 pages long. And... Uh, like all of Bitmap Books books, eye-catching colour pages, hardback cover as well. You know, the images in these books just leap off the pages. And this new edition has got an extra 70 pages of content. And um, even, you know, chatting to people like Seventh Guest co-creator and its software legends and, as well. Graeme Davina worked for Apple back in the day. And uh, really, if you know, you want to hear the definitive history of Mac gaming and uh, some of the absolute icons who made games on that platform possible, uh, have a look at that right now. You can order it. And all of their retro gaming books on the website bitmapbooks.com okay next going to be going inside the world of companies like core design walt disney studios and so much more as well with our special guest rolf moore he's coming up next on the retro hour podcast 
You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's special guest. Going to be covering so many incredible games and companies over the next hour or so as well, from like Core Designs to Sony Signosis to Disney as well and lots more as well with our special guest this week, Rolf Moore. How's it going, Rolf? It's going good. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us now. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about um, particularly time at Core Design that we'll start with in a moment as well. Because, I mean, I loved some of the games you worked on at Core. But, I mean, before we kind of get into that, I mean, it's always kind of nice to get a bit of background on where your journey started. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into video games then? Where did it all begin for you? I think, um, uh, you know, this such a long time ago when video games impinged on my consciousness. It's really kind of hard to tell now. Uh, it, there were there were super early games in the arcades and so on. So I think one that impacted me most was the Star Wars arcade game with its really cool vector graphics. Um, and of course, there were earlier indications that there were video games. I had friends who had the uh, the old Atari sports games, which were just glorified versions of Pong, incredibly mm. basic that you plug in the telly and play them. So I think they were the first kinds of games I was aware of, but I was also fairly early on getting aware of the, the concept of computer graphics in general, which made me very excited. So yeah, that uh, yeah, I've only have dim recollections. <laughs> I'd say the arcade <laughs> games impressed me most, uh, Star Wars and Tron in the arcade. And of course the the Space Invaders and so on, uh, which were fun and addictive but not impressive in the way that the uh, the vector graphics were, I think. Well, t- talking of Star Wars and Tron as well, mm. were you impressed by the uh, film effects and Oh, uh, totally blown away. It was sort of like so many people, it was life transforming. It, it completely set my career path in a way, like many people. And we'll, we'll mention that in some of the games <laughs> I worked on in a bit, for sure. It's hugely what, influential. Yeah. Well, what was the um, first kind of home machine that you got and you started, you know, playing with and were you yeah. doing art on there as well? Oh, well, I got... My first one was a ZX81. <laughs> which not was, too much art on a ZX81. No, yeah. you guessed right. <laughs> no, I did not manage to do any art on that one. Um, I think what impressed me most was just the packaging because they had these gorgeous artwork covers done by John Harris, who turned out to be one of the most sort of admired sci-fi illustrators from that period. He's now still got this kind of cult following. He was completely unknown at the time. And he painted these gorgeous sort of epic views of these gigantic sort of tower structures that were sort of vague, sort of hard to work out what they were. And then these tiny little ships on top of these gigantic almost blocks of ice, almost sort of ahead of his time, like that they evoke imagery of sort of cyberpunk of these towers of black ice in these imagery. And that that's actually what affected me most, more than the computer itself. Because I know you started working as a freelance illustrator, and I mean, you know, you're working for Dark Horse Comics as well. You're working on massive, famous sci-fi titles like Aliens and Star Wars as well. So tell us a bit about that and how your journey took you there and what that was like working on those massive franchises. Well, those came along a bit later. In my early career, I was sort of torn between trying to become a designer. My dad encouraged me to get a degree in architecture, which I sort of, you know, I, I agreed to sort of. Slightly reluctantly, because I was more interested in science fiction and filmmaking and illustration. So while I was doing my degree, I was still pursuing a, 
a career as an illustrator. So I was working on these uh, those early paintings, such as the Colossus, which is still probably my best picture I've ever done to this day. And I submitted a bunch of samples to an agency in London, an interesting connection back to John Harris. He was with an agency called Young Artists Agency. And I tried to get in there, but I couldn't. So I was submitting to book publishers and they referred to me to an agency called Sarah Brown Agency. And they liked my samples and asked me to do a few more. And one of them one of the samples I did was actually a sort of a commission for a friend at university. And the publishers, Galanks, were doing a re reprint of a Arthur C. Clarke collection of short stories, Reach for Tomorrow. And they liked that image. So they optioned it, as it were, as a second right steal. So they published a book with my art on it. Uh, so that was my first kind of famous claim to fame. Wow, you know, I. That was a lifelong sort of dream was anything in the realm of science fiction, let alone Arthur C. Clarke, who was my probably number one favorite author, along with Asimov. And uh, so that was kind of a trip (laughs) to see my cover on an Arthur C. Clarke book, especially so early in my career. And, um, you know, I I really struggled, to be honest, that the illustration field was dying at that time. So I jumped in right at the wrong moment. And there were about five top sci-fi illustrators who completely cornered the market. And they were all brilliant. I I couldn't really compete with them. And at the same time, I was looking around for freelance jobs. And but the comic, I'd always been into comics. That's kind of how I initially learned to draw, apart from copying dinosaurs and stuff like that, which I always loved since I was three years old. <laughs> I was into dinosaurs. But yeah, then I got into Spider-Man and Marvel comics. And so I did manage to connect with a few people to do some um, covers. And that, I think I got the connection through going to the comic convention in London and met people like Pat Mills, who was a co-creator of 2000 AD. And through that, I got connected to some people at Dark Horse UK, who for a short while were doing reprints of the Dark Horse comics in Britain. And uh, I also ran into Chris Cunningham, who's a more known for sort of movie uh, film directing videos, but he's got his start as an artist and effects guy. And he did a few Dark Horse covers for Aliens as well. And I, and I ended up going to his flat and he was showing me what he was working on, on the early um, version of what became AI that Spielberg did. But Kubrick was working on it for years before. Oh, and wow. Chris Cunningham was designing and modeling maquettes for, for robots and humans and stuff. And he had a little baby, a uh, sculpt of a baby's head in his flat. And uh, with part of its head gouged out, like that was where you're going to see the, ro- the robotics of the boy, the robot boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, oh, is that a life scan? And uh, he had just a little Polaroid photo <laughs> on his easel that he was working from. And it was so lifelike. It is, he is super talented. Uh, yeah, he did the um, Aphex Twin video. That's right. And he was working on that stuff when I was there. Okay, this is this is going to sound really pretentious of me, but he was working on a really early music video, and I said, you know what, the, the way you've done it, you haven't really edited it to, to time to the music very well. <laughs> and the thing is, that when he became famous, that was his main thing that he was known for. He did such tight, tightly edited to the music, to the beats, 
And it was like, oh, maybe he listened to me. So maybe I'm <laughs> maybe taking too much credit for that. But I think that's really funny. Well, um, you, so we're, we're diverging a lot here. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it's all good stuff. You were... Um... You were moved into Games Workshop, which was that kind of like transition in into the gaming world. It's tabletop as well, but um, like fantasy and, and sci-fi and stuff. What was it like um, working at Games Workshop or working with well, them? Well, I only worked very briefly for them. Um, I initially did some illustrations. I can't remember how I connected with them, but they were... I was living in Nottingham at the time because that's where I went to university. Where we're so recording, yeah. Yeah, so I lived I lived in Nottingham for 10 years and that's my connection with you guys. And uh, here's a funny thing. For a while I was unemployed, literally on the dole, and I would walk along the street where Games Workshop were located. So I'd walk past them on the way to the dole office to pick up my gyro <laughs> for a while so i can't i don't think i just knocked on their door i just can't remember how i reached out to them but i ended up getting to meet john blanche the art director and jez goodwin who designed the eldar who was a really talented sculptor and they basically liked my portfolio and got me to do a few black and white illustrations initially for white dwarf magazine and then at some point, I worked in-house for two weeks only. Again, just freelancing on some of the uh, buildings that were in the game. So they had those little sort of cardboard with plastic tops. And I was designing, well, create, illustrating the actual building facades that would wrap around the buildings. And I ended up doing a cover for Space Fleet, which was actually a hybrid. Uh, Fangorn, who was their most famous illustrator, had already done a version but they didn't like the view through the porthole to the actual space battle so i mm. redid the um the imperials versus eldar space battle as the main scene that was seen through the porthole and in a way it wasn't none of this was really a transition it was the <laughs> you know it was a weird story how i ended up working for core <laughs> Well, that's the thing, because you went from Nottingham, then, you know, mm -hmm. down the road in, to Derby, to Core Design. I mean, so, so what happened there then? How, how did you get the job there? Yeah, and why so, did you want to work in, in the video game sector? Well, the funny thing is I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to work in video games. Right. <laughs> uh, but I was definitely looking for freelance illustration. And I noticed that they were video games were doing really high quality covers for their games. And so I was at a friend's house in Nottingham who was a big Amiga geek. He was really into it and he had piles of magazines in his flat and one of them was something like Amiga Power or whatever and it had a really cool illustration of Thunderhawk by Core. So I literally just looked up their address and gave them a call and said, can I send you my stuff? And they said, yeah, sure, why don't you just come in? And I, I interviewed with them and it was um, to do a bunch of illustrations for this game they were making uh, and they wanted 2D hand-painted backgrounds that they would then scan in and put in the game, like all, all the old-school point-and-click adventure games were doing, you know, Sierra, LucasArts, and so on. So they were sort of joining that bandwagon. And I said, sure, you know, I'd love to, uh, but I just wanted to do freelance. And they, <laughs> they threatened me. They said, do you really want us to tell your landlord you turned down a full-time job? So I, I, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, to this day, I don't know how serious they were. I think they were joking, but they delivered it in such a dry, threatening way. I, I capitulated. 
<laughs> so I took the job, but I didn't move to Derby. I was I had a really miserable commute on the bus, getting up at like six a.m. in the in pitch black on Derby Road, getting the bus in front of the Savoy cinema there <laughs> and then uh, in winter when it was freezing you know i'd get off at the bus station in derby and there was another 20 minute walk in the ice and snow to the office <laughs> which wasn't much fun but the but the job made it worth it <laughs> well what was it like with the kind of limitations that were that were presented on the amiga and 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 trying to display you know yeah. something of high quality uh, w- with that kind of resolution well, that's one of the reasons I didn't want to work in games <laughs> because uh, my aspirations were all towards the high end of stuff. You know, I mentioned I love Star Wars and my illustrations were as detailed as possible. And so looking at games, it was frustrating to see those visual limitations. And so um, that was the first challenge was scanning in the, my art and then seeing how crazy low resolution it had to be crunched down to and then having to go in deep paint you know deluxe paint touch up all the pixels one by one and so on which initially I found super frustrating but it was also fascinating to see how cleverly pixel artists were already learning to create really nice art again back to the arcade games some of them were doing really really impressive uh, pixel art, especially on some of the top-down shooters and stuff like that. So I, I did find inspiration in looking at other games and understanding how how much you could actually convey quite effectively with just pixel art. So it was a sort of learned aesthetic that I, I grow to sort of appreciate. Um, there's so, like yeah. uh, lots of <laughs> tips and tricks and stuff uh, that, you know, uh, pixel artists were using to display it really well on the CRT and was that the kind of stuff that you were picking up? Um, Well, I wasn't doing anything clever myself. I was just sort of brute forcing it, just doing whatever I could to tweak and hand paint the pixels in to to enhance it and make it look good given the time I had, which wasn't always a lot of time. So it was as much as I could get done to meet the deadlines, you know. And But in the meantime, Gary was the smart guy who – did his clever split um, palette tech where he basically figured out how to create a separate palette on each line. So that way we could achieve approximately a sort of two, five, six color palette. That was a bit hit and miss. Sometimes the conversion process sort of mangled the images a bit and I would have to go in, touch up some of the lines where it ran out of colors and couldn't find a decent color to put in there basically. So I would have to touch it up afterwards by hand but that was the only clever technique which was very clever but other than that it was more or less just a lot of man hours just hand tweaking it really well one game that really is that to great effect i mean you talked about the you know the point and click adventure games mm-hmm. the core we're doing i mean universe which um yeah. i always loved that game as a kid and you, you play um a kid called um, Boris Verne, who I remember, I think he was in Ashby de la Zouche. Right. I think it was set in which is here in the East Midlands. And he yeah. had to ride his bike through the snow, maybe inspired by your walks. I from guess the, it must the have been. Station. <laughs> yeah, there were a few little uh, inside references for sure. Ashby, Ashby de la Zouche was one of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was a very atmospheric game. And I mean, what kind of influences were you, you taking for that and the design of the game and the, the look of it? Because, I mean, when I saw that running on an Amiga 500 mm. with those graphics, I mean, it was jaw-droppingly beautiful yeah I'm, I'm very proud of what i did for both 
Enchantia and Universe. And in terms of Enchantia, what, I've got a funny little story about that one because um, Yahtzee is a sort of bit of a Millie celebrity online who reviews games. He did a mm. review of Enchantia and completely ripped it to pieces, as he usually does. But he said, it, firstly, which was interesting, it was the first Amiga game he ever played, which I, I like that idea. But then he was wondering about who this artist was because they said they started to get the impression playing through it that it was so random, They but the only good thing was the background. So they said that they think they just found a bunch of great art great background art and just made up stuff to fit in each image. <laughs> and at the, Built a game around the art yeah exactly <laughs> the, which kind of isn't too far off the truth in a way by the end he looked at the credits and saw my name and said oh there's some guy in a cabin in sweden or something and they just commissioned a whole lot of paintings <laughs> and then made up the game which i think was hilarious uh but back to universe what that was actually was um the plan was to make a, a, a sequel in Chantia 2, but one of the team wasn't going to be on it. So I think for some reason they chose not to. So they were open to new ideas uh, for a sequel in the same kind of vein. And I'd written a, a movie pitch idea that I'd actually, in my naive, innocent self, I'd tried to send to Hollywood producers. So Gary Kurtz was the producer of Star Wars and, um, he was based in Britain, and I, I sent him my pitch package of my story and illustrations and stuff for this big, silly, ambitious sci-fi epic, which was completely inspired by Star Wars. And um, I sent it to a few others. I sent it to James Cameron and John Carpenter. And it was so funny because at, at one point, the agency I sent it to al- allowed me to call them. So I was sort of in a phone box again on Derby Road middle of the night or whatever it was <laughs> time in LA. And I was literally pounding in pound coins into this phone box. I didn't have a cell phone at the time and trying to talk to this agency in LA. And one of them actually said, is that Roger Moore? <laughs> I said, no, no, Rolf Moore. <laughs> and um, all I got was, you know, no, we can't accept unsolicited submissions. But I did get a note that apparently James Cameron liked my painting, which I included of the Colossus, which ended up in universe. So basically, all I did was adapted that story to make it work along the same format. So I didn't have a, a boy that got transplanted to another universe. I just had a, a big sort of space opera story. So I adapted it to fit the same mold as Enchantier about an ordinary kid from our world being transported into another universe. But instead of a fantasy universe, it was now a science fiction universe. Um, so that's how that came about. And so some of the imagery and paintings that are already done are either just literally repurposed one-to-one for that game or just adapted and created new designs for the world and the characters and so on. And I worked closely with... Um, Another guy, a designer, Jim Bottomley Mason, who's really great at helping develop the story a bit more and fleshing out a lot of the dialogue. And he brought a lot of the humor to it. I hadn't really conceived it with much humor, but he added a lot of that spice to the the dialogue, which which I think in the end helped quite a bit. Well, the um, you know cover art for uh, the Curse of Enchantia was mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. Um, uh, did 
do you find like it helped drive sales quite well and uh, interest? Well, the the boss Jeremy was really big on that. He definitely thought that was super important, and he had very high standards for the cover art. So he had his one or two go to illustrators who would do sort of high quality airbrush illustrations. So you know he was quite a perfectionist in a way, and he really wanted a high standard. So I, I you know, I, I delivered what I could. And the funny thing was, he nitpicked the eyelashes of all things on that on that painting. He didn't like the eyelashes the way I'd done them. So I think I, I tweaked them a little bit. But I think that was his only gripe. So yes, I would say that cover art was absolutely important. And it, it applies to so many things. It applies to book covers, comics, anything that the cover art. And that, that, like I said, that's what I tried to become initially was a cover artist uh, as, a, as a career. And I've always found it perhaps the most important thing when it comes to purchasing anything. You, know, you pick up that cover because it compels you and it draws you to it. And then you're just hoping the book or the comic or the movie or the game delivers on the promise of the cover. When we talk around that era, I mean, the universe came out in 94 and, you know, around that time kind of bubbling under the, you know, the PlayStation was about to be released in Japan that year. And, you know, there's a massive shift in gaming. Suddenly it felt like, you know, 12 months later, the entire world went 3D. So, I mean, mm. were you preparing for that and did you see it coming? And how important was learning 3D and, you know, systems like, you know, Silicon Graphics workstations? How did you kind of move into that? And did you see that as really important at the time? Yes, I knew that was going to be super important. So I mentioned that early on I'd seen early development of computer graphics. So even when I went, when I was choosing my university course, I was torn between industrial design or architecture, but I also knew computer graphics was going to be the thing. So um, I bought a book on computer graphics and it had stuff about you know how to code computer graphics and so on and it was so early that there was no real um distinction between what became the programmers and the artists in in graphics at the time it was all one and the same thing so even while i was at university i would jump on a bbc computer and try to literally you learn basic and type in the coordinates to make it draw a, a cube and stuff like that. I try to figure out my own little perspective equations, you know, it was absolute nonsense, but it was me attempting to get ahead on that. And my dad had a home computer as well. And he, I think he probably had something like Microsoft paint. So I would try to learn how to paint pixel art on there. I knew it was going to be huge. In fact, I thought, I thought on an Amiga, you would be able to make your own movies in the fairly near future, which was sort of in a way completely wrong. And yet in a way it was right because the um, show Babylon 5 was rendered on the high end Amigas, what were called Amiga toasters. So that's right. So I knew it was coming for sure. So I did try to learn 3D. I didn't, I, I dabbled a teeny bit while I was at core and if you remember on the universe, we did the first couple of scenes that were rendered in 3D. But uh, one of our other guys, Stu Atkinson, rendered one of the scenes in, I think it was, the program was real 3D. We had we had different ones. We, had, we did have um, Wavefront as well while we were there. 
and then when I went to Sony, I, I that was the first time I properly learned 3D on Soft Image. Well, during this time as well, you were doing stuff with Hasbro. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. h- how did that develop? And uh, how did you get into the kind of area of doing concepts? Yeah, that was, I think that was through my comic connections. So there was an agency called CIA, <laughs> not that agency, but a different one. Called- <laughs> and in black suits turned yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. That, that's right. Uh, they were Creative Interests Agency, which was a play on the Hollywood agency, Creative Artists Agency. And uh, they, a lot of their clients were comic artists, but they were using comic artists to do freelance illustration and concept designs. So they were the ones who hooked me up with Hasbro. And I was still in England doing um, sketches for what they were called, what they called at the time special projects. So in Rhode Island, Hasbro had a division that were focusing on movie pitches and they called them special projects. So I was just in my flat in London sketching and then faxing the sketches over, and they would just send feedback and so on. Um, so that was, yeah, that was really cool. Had, in a way, nothing to do with games. Um, it was a sideline that I was still interested in pursuing, being a illustrator or designer. And I've always loved the idea of designing for toys, so that was great. We did some, you know, some really interesting stuff around that time. There was a concept that you worked on, Tim Burton's Superman Lives. So what kind of happened with that project? And um, wasn't it Nick Cage who's meant to play Superman? What, what did That's you think right. of that? It, it is that very same project that is now sort of the stuff of legend in a way. And um, it was the second project I worked on for uh, Hasbro. And... Um, as it turned out, yeah, it was the Kevin Smith script that they were developing at the time, which I didn't really find out too much about until years later. In fact, you can go on YouTube and watch a hilarious talk by Kevin Smith of how he landed that job and the crazy stories of the producer, John Peters, who was Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. You ha- you have to watch that if you get a chance. And the reason it, it speaks to me is because... When I was <laughs> doing some of these concepts for Hasbro, they were talking about different actors, including Jim Carrey or Gary Oldman to play Brainiac. So it was interesting to hear to get insight into the process of how when Hasbro were collaborating with the movie studio, they even had a bit of a say on, you know, even casting as well as story and stuff like that, which surprised me. Um, but the fun funny thing was was they made me do various versions of a sort of uh, biomechanical spider as part of the uh, Brainiac's alien technology that was transforming and stuff like that. Well, years later, I watched the Kevin Smith video and he said that John Peters, the producer, had a weird obsession with a giant spider. <laughs> so he, wanted to, <laughs> he wanted to see a giant spider. And that's why Kevin Smith put it in the script. And he kept saying, why? Why do you want a giant spider? And and the producer, well, they're just the most dangerous, you know, fierce creature there is. Well, he never got the giant spider in Superman Lives, but he did in the film Wild Wild West, Wild Wild West with, you know, uh, Will Smith, that movie. And there was a giant steampunk mechanical spider. So he got it in the end. Oh, anyway. um, <laughs> I, if our listeners uh, want to hear more about uh, Superman Lives, there's uh, mm. the death of Superman Lives, what happened, which was a... Uh, 
a That's documentary right. that came out. Yeah, yeah, which is excellent. And actually, I was supposed to be on that, and uh, the guy making it contacted me. And for some reason, we couldn't figure out a, a good, a decent video method. <laughs> you know, we didn't. Uh, it might have been pre-Zoom, but whatever happened, we couldn't figure out a decent quality way of doing it. So I missed out on that one, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, Sony Signosis as well. Um, uh, how did you get involved there and uh, kind of, you know, Signosis moving from being an independent studio into, into Sony? What was the kind of setup like there? Yeah, I, I first uh, interviewed with a guy, Jeff Bramfit, who was an art director at Signosis. Uh, so he was from up north, you know, Liverpool. And then um, when I got started at Sony in London, they were still in this. They still had Sony Signosis on one floor and Sony Computer Entertainment on the floor above. So for three months, I trained with the Signosis artists on Soft Image. And as you, as you remember, this was all the big thing when Sony had bought all these Silicon Graphics workstations. So it was all sort of at the time the cutting edge of high end visuals for video games. So it was very exciting. And uh, I, when I was with the Signosis team, they were working on a Spawn game, which was all this high-end pre-rendered stuff, which was going to be a fighting game, a bit like how sort of Killer Instinct looked and, or Mortal Kombat, that sort of style. Not, not digitized from real actors, but high-end rendering. So that was pretty nice to be among those super talented artists. And then, yeah, three months later, I moved up to work for Sony Computer Entertainment. And I was hired by Phil Harrison, who at the time was just this young sort of newcomer, tall young guy in his early 20s. And then he became head of Sony Worldwide and Microsoft and Google and became this sort of international superstar. But well, was so it bizarre. really good to kind of, you know, get your hands on those silicon graphics machines and uh, yeah, like that kind of what, what stuff were you creating or playing about with? Well, one of the first things I did actually was a little um, render of the PlayStation itself. So the PS1, the PlayStation, they were doing a launch video. So I modeled and rendered that in Soft Image, and I had a, a little animated sequence of you flying towards the, uh, a PlayStation and then the lid would open up and all this glowing light would come out and then you'd plunge inside and it would transition you down into sort of cyberspace, like like Tron kind of idea, as if we were going inside the powerful, you know, processing power of the PlayStation 1, and it would have this vast city of possibilities in there. So that was my very first, you know, indulgence in that space. So that was really fun to do that. And then we uh, were tinkering with other projects. One of them was um, a, uh, a cyberspace game, uh, called Cyberjet, and then another one was um, Porsche uh, Challenge, which is the one I officially worked on that got released. And there were other couple of projects that never saw the light of day, you know. And uh, apparently, you, you came up with the name Killzone as well, was that? <laughs> uh, uh, which was somehow connected with Mean Arenas, which was a, <laughs> a, yeah, a, so a small fun title that I remember <laughs> playing on the Amiga. Well, yeah, there were um, so there were a couple of projects that were in development. One of them, like I mentioned, was Cyberjack, uh, which was a cyber cyberspace game. Like you're flying 
ship around like descent kind of thing. And we had our writer on that actually was George Stone, who was the creator of Max Headroom. Uh, he wrote the initial story and pilot and even came up with the name Max Headroom. So he was a really, really clever and funny guy. So he was writing the story. But anyway, I digress. The other, the other game prototype we were trying to get off the ground was with the same producer, uh, Martin Old Times. And he had this idea for a four-player beat-em-up. So we'd seen Tekken and so on, and we thought it would be fun to have tag teams and you know fight with four characters. So we were just playing around with ideas at the time, and we he asked us to write a short list of names. So me and Martin just wrote down a list of ideas for names. <laughs> and one of them, one of my ideas was Killzone, which is sort of influenced by the cheesy sort of Marvel UK comics at the time. And it was kind of not even a very serious suggestion, but I just threw it in there. And then what happened was I left Sony, but Martin got assigned to the the guerrilla team that were making this FPS, this sort of futuristic hard sci-fi first-person shooter, they had a name in mind for themselves, but Sony threw out a few ideas and Martin still had Killzone in his list of ideas. And he proposed Killzone and Sony liked it. Gorilla didn't, but they, Sony went with Killzone. So that's how I accidentally named Killzone, which is really bizarre. I'm guessing you don't get royalties for the name no, on, the, uh, on the recent titles, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, after your time at Sony Psygnosis, I mean, you ended up joining at DreamWorks Interactive, obviously mm-hmm. legendary company. I mean, why did you change and end up joining DreamWorks then? How did that journey happen? Well, I was, I was still looking around. I was sort of eager to maybe work in the US and work, you know, in, in Los Angeles and among Hollywood people. I'd still had a big, big interest in sci-fi movies and, you know, Star Wars and all the rest of it. So... And I loved Spielberg movies. And uh, what happened was I was at um, a big trade show, ECTS, which was like the British version of E3. And Sony had the entire one end of the hall occupied with their huge logo and everything. So we sort of our presence was there on one half of the <laughs> entire hall. And then right in front of them to the left was a little DreamWorks booth. <laughs> so I, and, and at the time I was still lugging my physical portfolio around. It wasn't all digital at the time. So I physically walked in with my portfolio under my arm, right in front of the Sony <laughs> stand and went into a little back room and talked to DreamWorks. And there was this guy there, Actually, there was a bit of a connection, which I keep forgetting, that a guy who was at DreamWorks called Kyle had previously done some work with Virgin Interactive, who were publishers for some of Core's games. So there was a bit of a little connection there. And um, he absolutely loved my portfolio and immediately put me in touch with the art director or several art directors over at DreamWorks. So they then flew me over for an interview and I met the various teams, and they said, which which team do you want to work with? And I was most impressed by what they were doing on Trespasser, which mm. is this crazy, ambitious project, you know, directly tied into a Spielberg film. I absolutely loved Jurassic Park, and the renders they were doing, these target renders were just so mind-blowing. It was like, how can I not want to be <laughs> on this project? So 
Well, tell us a bit about working on that, because, I mean, it was a really groundbreaking title, Trespasser, and it was like it was a CD-ROM sequel to Jurassic Park Lost World, yeah? Yes, it, that's what they build it as, a digital sequel to Jurassic Park Lost World, and um, it was very ambitious, as you know. Uh, I, I was even sceptical at the time. I thought, I don't quite see how you're going to be able to pull this off, uh, but I trusted them, and they talked a big talk, and we had uh, Seamus Blackley heading up the team who'd done Flight Unlimited for Looking Glass and he brought some of his team with him. They had incredibly talented programmers and engineers and artists. It was the most mind-bogglingly talented team <laughs> uh, I would have come across by that point. And um, just the environment, of course, being flown over to LA. All of it was just a, a mind-boggling experience. Um even even just from when I was in my little flat in London and, the, and this huge articulated lorry pulled into our court to take my stuff and my belongings were just put in the back corner of this enormous truck, you know, to transport my stuff over there and um, being put up in these nice sort of apartments by the ocean, right, right near Venice Beach by the ocean. The entire experience was just a trip and just physically walking around the DreamWorks studios, it felt surreal, you know, and then, you know, seeing Spielberg walk down the corridor and yeah, it was just sort of really surreal experience. Sounds um, like uh, just going into a, a, a totally different kind of insane world, really. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was, yeah, you can imagine it was such a sort of strange uh, transformation, you know. Uh, Quite a change from Nottingham and Derby. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. the bus trip, you know, in the snow and all that, and now sort of hanging out in Hollywood. Yeah, really weird. Well, you ended up doing some uh, titles for Nova Logic as well, and uh, hmm. Touchy on the Fringe was quite a good game for the PC. I remember it had a voice of Bruce Campbell That's right, yeah. in that game. Um, well, yeah. What was it like kind of returning to the sci-fi genre and, uh, you know, doing those, like... 3D space models. It's great, of course. I mean, that's why I took the job eagerly. Uh, well, although, to be honest, Nova Logic were more, more known for their military games. So they did things like Delta Force and um, the helicopter game Comanche. So they really only, uh, for some reason, they only tried the sci-fi game once, and it was uh, mainly because of the a lot of the team, a lot of the game studios in those days were sort of led by individuals who just promoted their own project ideas. There was a guy called Randy, and that was his whole baby, the Tachyon game. So the studio, you know, decided to greenlight his project. So it was his baby, and so I was happy to work on that. And it was great to um, use 3D Studio Max to model the, the ships and stuff, as well as concepting nearly all the ships in the whole game uh, built the space station that is on the cover as well. And the thing is, everything was so low poly. Uh, someone with my mediocre modeling school skills was able to, to at least do first pass models. I didn't do any of the final in-game models. Cause but, I was, you know. I was wondering, cause it was, it was quite multiplayer that title. And I was wondering, were there any considerations needed for like, you know, people with bandwidth issues yeah. and stuff like it, that? It, well, exactly. Yeah. That's what it was all about. Everything had to be optimal, super optimized, but I'd come from my whole career was spent dealing with op heavy optimizing of assets and so on. So I was already fairly well trained to think along those lines and I was already 
being very economical with the way I would design ships to, to have them naturally uh, low poly in the way their geometry was conceived. So, yeah, I was already kind of in that mindset by then. Well, working with Neversoft, I mean, obviously Tony Hawk's was a really, really strong brand there. And um, you worked on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4. I mean, mm. and obviously they were such big games and they were selling such big volumes. I mean, was a lot of pressure to kind of improve the standard every time and really make the games look better? Yeah, for sure. They, they were very, very hardcore. Um, I, I think I sort of took that as an interim job because it wasn't something I was super... I didn't have a... You know, I was still more in the sci-fi and fantasy world in, in my tastes, so I didn't have any plans to pursue that as a career. So I didn't stay there long. But, yeah, the, they were a very um, intense team who were all about performance and super high quality. And they just had their own unique work methods, such as the designer themselves would actually build the, the maps. And then the artist's job was more or less just texturing and skinning and fleshing out what was already built for them so in a way that was not as exciting for a designer like me who wants to design the visual environment from scratch so it was sort of less creative in that sense for sure well talking of creative uh, ratchet and clank was <laughs> just visually absolutely stunning i remember when i first saw it my like, jaw hit the floor and um that was that real step up in like mm. computer power and, and and space as well what was it like kind of joining insomniac and uh getting your hands on those games yeah i mean that was super exciting uh you know i already had, they already had a big reputation even since i was at dreamworks when spyro came out everybody was singing their praises who's this new team you know insomniac they're really good and they had it all you know they had really good performance and optimization really good gameplay really nice graphics so they were sort of considered you know definitely superstars already by that time so it was really cool to join their team and like neversoft they were in a similar way very hardcore very intense um but i think they had a they had a little bit better sense of organizational efficiency uh, one of the most impressive things was just the way they ran their company at every level, super organized. And I think that's why they were able to punch above their weight because they were so um, clever at uh, managing tasks and schedules and manpower and also making choices efficiently. Don't waste too much time iterating and trying to get something to work if it's not really going to, be worth it, you know, just if it's not worth it, just cut it and focus on the main elements that are going to make this game good. And uh, that sense of discipline, I think, paid off in those days. So it was a very tightly run ship. There was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of crunch, but the people were so good and talented. It, again, it felt worth it. So, yeah, the, the first, first thing I touched was the right at the end of the first Ratchet and Clank game, and I just painted some clouds for the sky <laughs> in, in level 16. <laughs> so, but the rest, yeah, I worked on all of them until uh, cracking time on PlayStation 3. I was going to say you've worked on a lot of Ratchet mm. & Clank titles. I mean, any kind of, what was your kind of favourite part of that? Any, any memories that stand there? My favourite parts were usually the, uh, the ideation phase. So when it was, you would just have very 
brief uh, description of the level and, uh, you know, maps of how the layout would be. And then you get to get in there and flesh it out and design it. That was always my favorite part. And those design ideas got more and more exciting as it progressed. So by the time of cracking time, I was coming up with some really imaginative, interesting ideas for environments that some of those never saw the light of day, but that was very exciting. In terms of sort of gratifying results, for me, the favorite end result was um, probably up your arsenal because of the sense of completion of that game and then playing it. Playing it was so fun. Uh, that whole experience was very rewarding. Well, here's a question. Have you worked on um, any cancelled titles that we might not have heard of before? Yeah, quite a few, actually. Some I probably can't talk about, but there are some I think it's okay to talk about. Um, some some is sort of publicly known. I think people do know that Enchantia, for example, was going to have a sequel, and I mentioned that earlier. Mm. And that became something else. And then the the two I already mentioned at Sony were Cyberjack and Mean Arenas. But at DreamWorks, there was one called Exile, which was a hugely ambitious science fiction game uh, that the producer there was developing. And he uh, he put so much time and thought into it. And we had an entire conference room with the walls covered in co- beautiful concept art. He had multiple really talented concept artists working on, you know, this project. And I did a bit of work for it, which was really cool. It was all going to be quote-unquote next-gen at the time. And in a way, they they just sort of treated it like, oh, next-gen, literally anything's going to be possible. (laughs) They had no sort of sense of realism about it was just going to be an increment in technology. It wasn't just suddenly going to be instant photorealism. But that happened multiple generations. There were so many times that we went through the same thing of, oh, it's going to be totally photoreal next generation. Oh, really? We're still not even there. There is no photoreal <laughs> game that exists. But they thought it was going to be like that back in the you know, 90s or whatever. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, yeah, that never saw the light of day. And the guy moved over to DreamWorks Animation and worked on Sinbad. So he just dropped the ball and moved on. There's another one I worked on, which was a Lunar Racer. Briefly worked at a little startup company, and they had a bit of a cross-promotion with NASA. So they were going to do this racing game set on the moon. That was a lot of fun. And then when I when I was in between jobs, in when I was in Austin, Texas, I had a little startup company called Microraptor Games, and we pitched a few different projects, one of, one of which came very close to getting greenlit by Sony and Microsoft, but never quite saw the light of day. Can't really talk much about that, but that would have been a really cool game. And then uh, the other one, which is much better known, was Battlecry. So again, in Austin, um, Zenimax had spun up a studio called Battlecry Studios to make a game called Battlecry. It was a multiplayer arena-based game, and it was designed by um, Viktor Antonov, who's a really, really talented uh, production designer who was responsible for Half-Life 2 and the whole, how he conceived City 17, the whole environment. And he was the kind of whole inspiration for the Dishonored franchise, that whole look. That's his wheelhouse, is that sort of retro steampunk slash sort of Victorian colonial era. He loves all of that style. And it was that kind of 
he d- he'd done an art book about a, a bridge set in that world, and uh, that's what the the inspiration for this game was based on, at least at a visual level, and the design of these alternate history sort of colonial powers all doing battle in these sort of arranged arenas that would just be set up in different towns. So they would take over the center of a town and build their arenas temporarily, have a fight, and then move on. And that's how they settled disputes between the powers. So that was really a lot of fun to design. I mean, you kind of touched on there, I mean, you know, about the the change in console generations and kind of the expectations as well. And I mean, I'd I'd say in terms of, you know, the the leaps in console technology, that decade from the mid-90s when you went from the, you know, the PS1, then to the PS2 in the early 2000s, to kind of the the HD generation, the PlayStation 3. And I know you're working on um, launch titles for the PS3, like Resistance Fall of Man. Mm. I mean, did it kind of feel like, you know, those graphical jumps, did they feel really big? And how did you take advantage of those? I think you're right that for me, the PS3 has always felt like the biggest jump out of all of them. And uh, yeah, we were right on the cutting edge with Resistance. That was actually SKU number one. So that was the number one released title by Sony on their new platform. And that's when we it felt really like we were right there working so closely with Sony and our engineers were over there in Japan actually helping design the hardware for the console. And actually, Insomnia was a bit overlooked at the time because everybody thought of Naughty Dog as the tech people and nobody knew how how much muscle we had in our, in our technology group at Insomniac and how intimately we were working with that group. They called it the ICE team where they were sharing technology with the Sony Cambridge as well and Gorilla. And we were completely integral, or at least our engineering team were. So to be in that space, seeing it firsthand was super exciting. And all the new capabilities we were designing for resistance. In fact, early on, that was going to be set in World War One, but it shifted a bit because they didn't feel the weaponry would be balanced enough with that sort of primitive sort of technology against aliens. So they shifted it to World War Two period. And um, we focused so much on the, the sort of gameplay and the, the processing power that was sort of going on under the hood to do an open world with tight sort of gameplay running at 60 frames a second, it it maybe impacted us a little bit on the visual presentation side, which was a bit considered a bit lackluster by the public. Whereas we went out against Gears of War at the same time, who were really focusing on the visuals a lot more, as well as having an innovation with the third person style of game. So they had it all going for them, but they... Theirs was buggy and it had so much problems with frame rate and all sorts of glitching, but the the public didn't care. They enjoyed the game so much they, they forgave all the bugginess and we we suffered a bit in terms of reviews by by contrast, which was kind of annoying to me because I felt people didn't quite appreciate how much we we'd sort of innovated in that game and our technology. So but it's okay. It's still, I'm still very proud of that, and the second one as well, Resistance Two, They're really impressive games. You also worked on some um, so, so, some great brands, which like uh, Halo and uh, mm. uh, Twisted Metal. And I, I was thinking, you know, what was the approach of kind of making them look improved and updated without losing that kind of relation to the original concept, and uh, you know, not alienating the fan base. 
Hmm. Well, I didn't have much involvement with Twisted Metal at all. That was when I was working for a sort of an outsourcing group in a way for Sony. They have a group called VASG in San Diego and they they hire freelancers. So I only did a bit of concept work for a cinematic for that game. So I had very, very little input on that. Okay. So that was just nice to to be able to put it on my resume because it's a cool game, you know, and it was nice. The, the conception of that cinematic was really cool. But Halo, I had a lot more insight into working with certain affinity and we were sort of co-developers with 343. They were running the show and we worked closely with their art directors and so on. At the time, the art director for 343 was uh, Kenneth Scott, who'd come off of uh, Doom and Rage from id Software. And he is a really, really, really talented artist and art director. So he was the main influence on the visual side. And he did a lot of rethinking of the, the armor suits and he developed the um, the architecture of the Forerunners uh, quite deeply. So we worked closely with them in terms of the art style. And I think it was relatively easy to maintain consistency with the, with the visual language that had been established. We also had a really good art director on our end, Mark Anderson, who previously worked on God of War. So I think we... We had it really covered. We were we had such a strong art team at Certain Affinity, and such good art direction on Three Four Threes, and uh, it was relatively easy to just focus on upping the ante. You know, just really pushing the visual quality across the board, and uh, having some freedom to innovate a little bit within certain boundaries. I was in some of the multiplayer maps. I was pushing the visual style a bit more away from the clunky old sort of 80s angular and 45 degree stuff and pushing towards a bit of a sleeker more modern take on science fiction and they were they were quite open and receptive to some of our ideas so that was really rewarding working on that i think if anything some would argue they dropped a ball more on the game design side where where they deviated Mm. a bit from a lot of the successful formulas they'd figured out in halo 3 which some people still would say played a lot better than Halo 4. I enjoyed playing Halo 4, but it was somewhat of a linear experience compared to Halo mm. 3, I think. Beautiful looking game as well, though. Uh, I, I, not to yeah. brag, but yeah, I think it, it was absolutely <laughs> beautiful. I mean, the, ta- and the talent on 343's end as well, they had incredible concept artists, uh, not to mention Dylan Cole, who's now a superstar working on the Avatar movies. He got nominated for uh, an Oscar for the production design along with Ben Proctor. And I happen to work with them now at Disney on the Avatar games. So, yeah, it's funny how some things come full circle, you know. <laughs> well, that is your current role. I mean, yeah. let's kind of move to the current day. I mean, your lead concept artist at Walt Disney Studios. I mean, how did you end up working there? And I mean, you're working on, I mean, working on stuff like Tron <laughs> and Aliens and Guardians of the Galaxy. That must be incredible. Yeah, these are all, you know, these are all you're listing my favorite IPs, my favorite movies and stuff. So it is a bit of a dream, you know, situation to have landed in. Uh, it's because I went to Telltale, worked on Guardians of the Galaxy and Batman there. And then I went to 2K on the Bioshock 4 team, you know, for Cloud Chamber, which is a new studio they spun up. So 
having all that stuff on my resume means you start to get headhunted. So Disney actually reached out to me and everything they described sounded so cool. I couldn't really turn it down. I'd also previously worked at Disney, of course, on Epic Mickey when I was in Austin. So Warren Spector had that studio. Uh, the, La- the legendary history. developer, mm-hmm. uh, Warren Spector yeah. as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was great to work with. And um, the project itself was very challenging. But one of, the re- one of the reasons they hired me was because of what I was doing at Insomnia on the PS3 Ratchet and Clank games, which our whole objective was to make them try and look like Pixar movies. And that's exactly what uh, Junction Point wanted to try and achieve with Epic Mickey. They wanted to blend the sort of platforming, action gaming of Ratchet and Clank with the Pixar look. So that's why they hired me to art direct Epic Mickey. Well, technically my title was Visual Development Director. And so I was pretty... uh, significant in figuring out the whole look of that game after they'd done earlier versions which were much more ambitious with these crazy huge environments that couldn't really be achieved on the current uh, consoles of the time and so i had to help figure out how to sort of scope it down a bit and make it feasible well it was Rolf, all very fun <laughs> well rolf before we finish I, um what are you currently working on and what can you kind of talk about uh, well, for Disney, I, I mean, I obviously can't say much, but I can say, you know, um, I've been helping out on some of those IPs, so Avatar, Tron, and Aliens. And But the uh, as far as my own projects, I'm also working on a couple of short film projects as well as my own graphic novel called Heonark, which I've been <laughs> – I'm way behind on, but I tinker away at it when I can. Uh, and one day maybe I'll – release that as a graphic novel in some form. It might be digital online, not necessarily print, or could be both, of course. Well, Rolf, it's been absolutely amazing. I, I can't believe how much we crammed into that hour. <laughs> you know, y- your career over the last 30-odd years has just been incredible. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your memories with us, and uh, best of luck with the future. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, great fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.